Well, good morning. Let's try that one more time. Good morning. Inside of your worship guide, there's a little tear out. Would you do me a favor? If you're a guest, would you fill that out at the end of our service, put in the offering plate? Uh, we'd be glad to connect with you this week through letter and thank you for being here. If you have a prayer request or a ministry need, make sure that you mark that down as well and put it in the offering plate. We do pray for those on Monday in staff meeting at 11 o'clock, and we'd be glad to know what concerns you and what needs you have that we can pray for and ask for God's sovereign interference and uh, blessing on your particular need. Today is a day in which on the fourth Sunday of every month we invite children to come in here. Some of you are a little bit late coming in. Uh, this is a special day. It's time for us to worship as families. You know, there are so many churches and so many activities that are pulling families apart. How many of you this weekend went to a children's activity where mom went one place and dad went to another place because the kids' activities were at the same time? Those happen all the time if you have more than one child in your home. And so sometimes our culture and our community sort of pulls families apart. And we, one Sunday a month, we want to come together and just worship together as one family unit and as a big family unit. There are workers over here who need to come into the big church from time to time and get preached to. Right, Mark? We're expecting you to repent right as soon as service is over, though. Oh, really, we have some wonderful people that are involved in our children's ministry here who love God and love children and are committed to that. And just one Sunday a month, we want them in here so they can be a part of the bigger and broader picture of what God is doing. And I'm glad you're here. If you're a parent, this is not a small task. We're going to begin to sort of tailor the fourth Sunday, uh, you know, worship together a little bit differently. And, and so it uh, doesn't mean the sermons will be any shorter. They'll just be a little bit different. And everybody went, aw, <laughs> that's what I thought. But anyway, so it's going to be a good time together. Uh, today's an interesting study. We're going to jump from the first to the fifth string in our heart strings that needs to be fine-tuned, an attitude of the heart. And the reason why is because two, three, and four are subjects that we really don't want to talk about in a smaller audience, in a younger uh, crowd, so to speak. They're a little bit, you know, I would hate for some of you to go home and your child go, well, what's that, Mom? And what's that, Dad? And you would have to explain, and I don't want to put you in that precarious position. So we're going to jump down to number five in the attitudes of the heart that need to be fine-tuned. This is the attitude called retaliation. That is an attitude of the heart that needs to be fine-tuned today. And Jesus is going to address that attitude. What is the attitude of retaliation? The attitude of retaliation is simply this. What you do to me, I'm going to do to you. Every child in this room knows exactly what I'm talking about. Even two or three-year-olds know that what you do to them, they will try to do to you. Or what their peers do to them, they will try to do to their peers. And just take some time and go in the nursery. By the way, we always need nursery volunteers. Tell Manuel I got this in for her. If you'd like to spend some time with little bitty people, there's an opportunity for you to minister every week in our nursery. And we have, I don't know, close to 80 to 100 people over there every Sunday morning that we don't hardly ever see unless you're over there and you have a, a little bitty one. So just go over there for a change and see what happens when one child walks up to another and takes an object. What does that child want to do? To retaliate. 
If I were to do this, get me on a close-up. You ready? If I were to go like this to you, what would you do? That's what I thought. If I were to hit you, what would be your instant reaction to someone hitting you? To hit them back. Not just to hit them back, but to hit them harder than you were hit. Because there's something about the inner heart that not only wants to make others hurt when they hurt us, but to retaliate and to hurt them more than what they have hurt us. There's something that wants to get vengeance. We are spiteful people, and by nature, we want revenge. I can't tell you all the heart cries that I saw when one of our, our reporters was, uh, was uh, martyred for being an American just a few days ago, and the outcry of revenge from many people who wanted us to nuke those people and to wipe them off the planet and off the face of the earth. Now, what we're going to be studying is a very, very, very sensitive subject because there are some who, are, who have taken these principles of Jesus and they have molded them and shaped them to mean more than what Christ intended. That was happening during his contemporary culture when this passage was written and when this passage was given by Christ himself. But what we've done today is we have gone the other side of the coin, and there are many of us who would say that when somebody does evil, we do not then seek justice for the evil that they have done. This passage is not about justice. This passage is about personal revenge. For when we commit a crime, there is a price to be paid for committing the crime. You follow me? When an evil is committed, a crime is committed, or a debt is owed, there is always to be recompense for that crime or that debt. That's not what Jesus is talking about here. And there have been some who have used this and these passages and several others that Jesus has spoken about in that we are not to engage in war or we are not to have a police force. We are not to, to, to basically enforce the law. And that's not what Jesus is saying. Jesus is addressing here personal vengeance only. In other words, when I am done wrong, someone does a sin against me, violates my rights, takes away my personal possessions, steals from me, then I am not, according to Jesus, supposed to go and seek personal vengeance upon them. I am not the judge nor the jury, much less the executioner of the punishment that I believe they deserve. Because you see, when I'm hurt, that string that we had last week, Anger rises up, and when anger rises up, there's an emotional aspect then that causes me not to see clearly, much less to enforce upon another revenge for what they have taken from me. Because, you see, anger becomes emotion, and emotion, when it seeks to seek vengeance upon those that have hurt us, we always, in anger, want them to hurt more or to pay more than what they have taken from us or what they have done to us. And so I want us to take a look at the passage that Jesus is talking about in Matthew chapter 5, verse 38. Notice the passage that says, You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. And if, 
anyone were to sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. And if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. Give to the one who begs from you and do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. These are good words for a marriage. Because you see, in marriages, because we are humans, your spouse is going to say something or do something, maybe unintentionally and maybe even intentionally, and everybody goes, no, they would never do that. They're going to do something that's going to hurt you. And you as the spouse are going to be tempted to retaliate upon that spouse. Imagine what that would do to your marriage. You retaliate. Now they're hurt. They retaliate. And now, and and that goes back and forth. And that begins then to tear away at the very fiber and the foundation of that marriage. Eventually that marriage then will quickly dissolve. Let's say among siblings. I know that never happens in your family. Uh, my, uh, I remember the, the, the hours in Brazil as a missionary kid. We rode around in a Willis Jeep with my dad on these, these wild mission trips to obscure places in, in South America, Brazil. And we had in the back seat, we had counted the little stripes that were there. And we would fight over how many stripes everybody had. And we had a certain number of stripes. And if you crossed that stripe, you would get hit. And I can remember, remember swapping hits with my, with my brother and my sister and uh, many times having to defend my sister because that was my job as the older brother because my middle brother was always beating up on the little sister. The fights that happen among siblings. And when one of the siblings does something to hurt or offend the other, It's wrong, it's hurtful, it's been evil, it's been intentional, not intentional, and that sibling then seeks to retaliate. Imagine the conflict that it brings into the lives of the family and the parents. And now taking on a thing called a referee's uniform and a whistle and a flag, having now to render a verdict over who did what first. You ever been there? Sure you have. Let's say how that relates then in a workplace, someone hurts you, offends you, insults you, uses you. You've been wrongfully used or hurt in some way, intentional or unintentional. And your first reaction is what? I'm going to get them back. And you began then to concoct in, in your mind all of these scenarios and all of these plans as to how you're now going to get vengeance upon what they have done to you. Imagine that happening in a church. Imagine that, a church filled with imperfect people who for whatever reason, intentionally and unintentionally, you are, you are communing with them in a life group and you're supposed to be in community and you're supposed to be relating to each other in love and acceptance and all of that. And someone then shares what was shared in the privacy of the group, shares it outside the group, the gossip begins to go, and as a result of that, you've been hurt. How are you going to respond to that? Or should I say in a Baptist business meeting that I've been in many times over the 30 plus years of ministry and words are exchanged and as a result of that sides are chosen 
And as a result of that, division is created. Why? Because someone has been hurt, and now there is a vengeance, a retaliatory attitude, a condition of the heart that divides the church rather than bringing it together. But you don't know what they said, Pastor. You don't know how I felt. You don't know how I feel. You don't know the scope and the magnitude of my pain. I may not, but I know someone who does, and his name is Jesus. And we, like followers of Christ, must come to the very place in our lives where we, although we are being suspended on a cross of Calvary for the sins of others, not our own, and we have the gall to look down at those who are executing us, and we say, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. That's Jesus. And that is the standard that Jesus not only lived, but is the standard that he is now setting on the Sermon of the Mount for his followers, for his disciples. And as we take a look at the text, I want us to first of all look at Jesus begins this introduction in this wonderful attitude that we're supposed to exhibit, a higher standard than that of the Pharisees and the scribes. He says, first of all, I want to give you a biblical reference that I'm going to then play off of. There's a foundational reference that I'm going to give you. Notice in the text, verse 38, you have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. An eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. Sounds fair to me. Doesn't that sound fair to you? You take my eye out, I'm going to take your eye out. You take my tooth out, I'm going to take your tooth out. Does that sound fair? I said, does that sound fair? You're not quite so sure, are you? <laughs> I don't care what happens. Sounds like pain for both people, doesn't it? Notice in the words of Jesus in verse 39, he first of all talks about the target audience. The target audience is you. You. Who are they? These are the these are the, the personal instructions to those who are his disciples, and it's a public invitation to those who want to be his disciples. He said, if you want to follow me, I'm about to show you what the standard has been set, what the standard has been said, but I'm about to elevate the standard to a higher standard than what you currently know and practice. Those of you who want to be my disciples. Now, if you want to be a disciple of Christ, seriously, a disciple of Jesus, this is the attitude that we must exhibit. And if you don't want to be an attitude, a, a disciple of Christ, then they don't exhibit this attitude. And there's some of us who might claim to be disciples of Christ, but we don't want to exhibit these attitudes. But if we are truly disciples of Christ, we have no alternative. We have no other choice. These are the attitudes that we must exhibit in our day-to-day -day relationships with our spouses, with our children, with our parents, with our, with our, in all relationships, especially those of the family of God. Those of you who want to be my disciples have heard. Notice, they have trusted in someone. There's been, a, there's been a, a projection of trust. They have heard someone, and the people that they have heard have been the people that they have trusted the most, the Pharisees and the scribes. These are the people who are supposed to be gifted in understanding, interpreting, applying, and then teaching the laws and how to practice them. They've heard this. They've been proclaimed, they have been repeated, and now they are being lived out. And as a result of this trust, notice that you have heard that it was said. They, not, they have not heard what has been written, they have heard what has been said. They've heard the oral law. 
They've not heard the written law of God. They have heard the introduction. They have heard the the understanding. They have heard the exegesis of the word. They have heard what I think about the word, but they have not, in essence, heard what God said. They have heard what man said. They have heard the oral law, and Jesus is about to return them back to the written law, away from the traditions in the oral law. Because you've heard it said, he says. But I'm going to bring you back to what has been written, not what has been said about what has been written. And that's the dangerous part about interpreting, applying, and living out Scripture. We need to make sure that what we, what we are living out is, in fact, God's Word and not someone's interpretation, application, and understanding of what the Word says. And there's a myriad, there are millions of people that believe that they're practicing what God said, but they're practicing things that God never intended and God never said. And as a result of that, they are way outside the boundaries and the scope of what a disciple of Christ should not only look like, but how they should live. All become some pastor said this, or some televangelist said this, or some radio preacher said this, or some Bible study that I read, or the latest, hottest book that I read. We need to be students of what God said, and we need to be equipped in how to understand for ourselves whether or not this preacher or this writer or this radio evangelist or this guy or this life group teacher is actually teaching us what God said, not what they think he said. That's why Jesus says, and the word of God says, that, it, 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 that very few should become teachers, because it's a dangerous thing to stand where I stand. And I, I, I don't take this position lightly because I know what I say should be not what I think it says, but what does God say that it is? Because I'm going to be held accountable for what I say. And so should you. And notice he said that they've trusted in these, these, these sayings and they've been transferred in their lives. What is the saying? The saying is an eye for an eye and a tooth for tooth. That, that is what we would call basically justice. That is, that is the foundation of our judicial system. That is where we get, for example, that everyone is to be treated fairly, that everybody is equal, that all of us should stand on equal ground when it comes to what has been done to us or how we should then respond or reciprocate or, or ask for justice for those that have hurt us or offended us. In other words, the punishment should meet the crime. The punishment for a crime committed or wrong committed should not, bid, should not exceed what was then taken or what was stolen or the offense that was given. There, there's a lot of legal things here in which we see a lot of measurements here. I don't have time for that. But here we see that this is God's gift to his people, which is the civil court. It is the judicial system for his people, the Hebrew nation. He, he began this in Exodus 21 and Leviticus 24, where he gave to his people this this legal way of, of, of governing themselves. He knew that because we're human, we're going to intentionally, unintentionally hurt people. We're going to take what doesn't belong to us, and we're going to borrow and not pay back. Uh, we're going to offend someone 
and hurt their feelings. We may insult them. We may degrade them. They're just all kinds of human interactions in regard to the socialization and interaction and relationships. He understood that. And so he gave us this an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. That's the judicial system. I went to court recently and there's always a plaintiff, isn't there? The plaintiff is someone that has an accusation against someone, and they bring it to the court of law, and, and they, they file their motion and their papers, and the plaintiff then comes to the court on court date, and there's a defendant, and that defendant then comes and presents their defense, and the plaintiff then presents their offense, and then they have adjudication. And you always do it where? In a court of law. That's, this is where this came from. There was a court of law Back in, in the Mosaic Law, where people would have trials just like we have now, there was a judge who would then preside over the court and the hearing and who would say out of bounds and that's fair and no, that's not fair and he would adjudicate that way. There was a, a plaintiff who would then bring his accusations and his charge and present his case. There's a defendant who would then come and he would then present his case and defend his case and say this is why and this is what happened and all that. And then as a result of that, in some cases, a judge would then preside over that and give his ruling. In many cases, in some cases, there was a jury of their peers who would then sit and they would then associate that in a, another room and come back with a verdict. And when, according to the Judeo law, when the verdict was rendered, either by a judge or jury of their peers, there were occasions when the one that was offended would get to inflict the judgment. How'd you like that? You're the person that's been wronged, and you are allowed by the judge and by the courts now to inflict harm or hurt or the judgment or the penalty upon the one that harmed you. That happens sometimes. Now, by the time it came to Jesus' day, there was a tradition, there was a practice that was being practiced in which there were so many legal matters and all of that that the Pharisees and the scribes decided that they would let people just vindicate themselves for any reason. There was a, a perversion of the law, so to speak, where if you hurt or offended me or wronged me in any way, I then personally could be the judge, the jury, and the executioner of the sentence, and I could inflict pain on you and suffering on you for the pain and the suffering that I have received. That was allowed by the traditions and the customs of Jesus' day. And there was an incredible perversion that was going on. And Jesus is seeking now to correct that perverse activity where there were gobs of people that were taking personal vengeance on other people simply out of spite, out of malice, and out of evil in their own hearts. And there was chaos and confusion in the culture of Jesus' time. It was permissible by the oral law. You hurt me, I'm going to hurt you back. And if you decided to go to the court, the court would say that I as the one who was hurt, had legal right to do what I did to you as long as it was eye for eye and tooth for tooth. No court, no trial, no plaintiff, no defendant, no verdict, each one doing what was right in his own eyes, vindicating the other. Does that sound like some of that's still going on today? I can't tell how many times when I was a father that my children in a dispute when they felt like they were hurt, the one who had been hurt would take upon himself or herself to be the judge, the jury, and the executioner and inflict punishment on the one that hurt them. Doesn't that happen in our families? Come on, parents, doesn't that happen in our families? Yeah. 
I know there are a lot of children here who sometimes wish they could go to a judge and a jury when mom and dad are disciplining them (laughs) and present their case and be the defendant and parents could be the plaintiffs and have a court of law. That doesn't always happen. But I have known parents to strike their children out of vengeance, out of anger, out of retaliation. We call that abuse today, and it's against the law. And so we still have pretty much, if we're not careful, some of the same practices in Jesus' day. And Jesus is now saying, you have heard it said, but now I want to elevate what you have heard, and what you're practicing. I want you to notice now in verse 39, the broader revelation that Jesus gives. There's a judicial system, but here's my judicial system. My judicial system implies mercy. Mercy. What is mercy? Easy, simple definition of mercy. Mercy is simply this. I don't do to you what you rightfully deserve. Mercy is my not taking action, my not hurting you. I have the ability, because I'm bigger and stronger or or more powerful or more wealthy or I have connections, I can inflict pain on you, but because of mercy, I choose not to. That's how we have been received by God. God in his sovereignty and in his power and all of his wisdom and and all of his eternal presence, he could, if he wanted to, to be unmerciful to us and give us what we rightly deserve. But he, out of his mercy, does not treat us as we deserve to be treated. Mercy is the absence of activity. I could hurt you. you. You've hurt me. I could hurt you, but I choose not to. That's mercy. If you take a look at the text in verse 39, it says, But I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. Simple verse. The word but is a conjunction. conjunction. It is a word in which Jesus is using here in this context, saying, you have heard it said, but I'm going to contrast what you've heard, and I'm going to bring it to a higher level. You've heard this, but I'm going to contrast that with my standard. But I, Jesus, the Son of God, the author of the Word of God, the supreme great I am, I, Jesus, the divine Son of God, the author and the life and all there is that, you know, I, Jesus, I say, I am about to speak the word of God because I am God. I speak the word of God and I, Jesus, speak to you who wish to be my disciples. If you wish to be my disciples, this is what I say. Notice what he says. Do not resist. What does that mean? It means do not retaliate. Do not seek vengeance. It means do not seek revenge. It means when you've been hurt, do not seek to hurt the other person that has hurt you. Refrain from the emotion, the anger, the pain, and the hurt. I know it's hard, he says, but refrain from doing that. How can I do that? Well, let's take one aspect of the fruit of the Spirit. What is, one, what is the last aspect of the fruit of the Spirit? self control. That is often the most overlooked aspect about the fruit of the Spirit. We like the love, and we like the joy, and we like the other things, but we often, by the time we get to the self-control thing, it's like, self-control. Why? Because we all have a problem with self-control. 
And when anger rises up, when I've been hurt, when I've been offended, when I've been abused, and I feel wronged, what do I want to do? I want to stomp on them. I saw the other day coming to church, I saw somebody who turned to somebody else, and what they do? They revved up to turn into them, and then they revved up and turned into them. And before you know it, you had a, you had a situation on your hands where people could have actually been killed. Why? Because everybody's trying to outdo the other to seek revenge over a stupid situation, someone cutting into someone else in line. Have you not witnessed that? Some of you have done that. And Jesus is saying, do not retaliate. But notice it says, do not retaliate or seek revenge on the one who is evil. In the original language, this is one word. It's called the evil one. Now, don't misunderstand and misinterpret what he's saying here. Jesus is not saying the evil one, meaning Satan. This is not satanic. It's not Satan. Uh, It's not Lucifer. It's not his demons. This is not that. It is someone that has done wicked, sinful, hurtful, wrongful things against you. They're wicked. They're carnal. They're fleshly. They're selfish. They're for personal gain. I have hurt you to gain something from you. And now you're offended. And he says... I say to you, do not retaliate, never seek revenge on the one who has hurt you. Never, ever do that. Don't do that. I ask you to turn to a passage in Romans 12, 17. Turn to Romans 12, 17. Romans 12, 17. I might have turned there too. Somebody tell me where Romans is. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. Is it after John? Twelve seventeen through 24. That's not right. It's not on the screen, is it? There it is. Okay, cool deal. It wasn't on my screen down here. I wasn't thinking it was up there. So sometimes these screens are not the same. I want you to look at this passage for a moment. And I want you to take just a minute. I'm not going to read it to you. I'm going to take just a minute, and I want you to read it. Just read what it says. If you're not done, raise your hand. Jesus is the supreme authority. He's given us a sacred stand by which we're to stand on. We're to stand on mercy. The same mercy we've received from the Father, we're to extend to those who have offended, who have hurt us, and who have done wicked, evil things against us. But notice now the sure victory that is ours, that is secured for those of us who are disciples. What does he say in this text? 
I'm going to write this down. I want you to write this down because I'm going to give this to you very quickly. This is another sermon all in itself, but I don't have time to do that today. But I'm going to give you five things that I think Romans 12, 17 through 21 says. Number one, to have victory, we must review our thoughts. Review your thoughts. If you take a look at the first verse, it talks about reviewing your thoughts. Because when we've been offended and we've been hurt, our thoughts run the, the course, don't they? I mean, our minds are boggled with all kinds of what ifs and ands and scenarios and what we'd want to do. And he talks about what we think about. So we need to review our thoughts. We need to release the pain. To release the pain because God has a time and a place and a purpose. Jesus, God, the word says, vengeance is mine, saith the Lord. And in time, they will reap what they sow. So rest in God's timing. Release the pain and rest in God's timing because God's timetable is not always ours. And I guarantee you, when he repays evil for evil, not you repaying it, but when he repays evil for evil, he is always the one who settles the score rightly and justly because he is a righteous God. And the word righteousness and justice is the same word in the original language. Did you know that? And because God is the one who sets the standard and he is always righteous in his standard and measuring justice that is needed to to pay back someone for the evil that they have committed, you just give it to God and say, God, in your time and in your way, I know you will act. And so I leave it up to you because I know who I am. I will want them to hurt more than they're hurting, hurt more than I hurt. I want them to pay more than they owe me. I have that tendency. So when I give it to God, I let God take care of things, and he's always just. Number four, I need to resist any, any, any effort to retaliate. And that's hard because we rehearse and we review the hurt and the pain over and over in our minds. And, and, and as a spouse, you may, but just wait till I get home tonight. Oh, wait, wait till it's time to get in bed. I'm give them the cold shoulder. I'll let them buy golly. I was, uh, there was, I'm trying to remember the name of the film. I should say it, but I'm going to say it anyway. My wife said, when you say that, don't say it. But there was a good movie here a couple of years ago back where a lady got, was hurt by someone else and she made her a pie. Remember that? I don't even have to tell you about it, do I? Is that retaliation? See what we do when we let our minds just run wild and we seek vengeance on those that we believe have done us wrong? And I think lastly, we need to reach for what is good. It's hard to be good to your enemies. It's hard to do good for those who curse you. It's hard to be polite to those who are impolite. It's hard to be loving to those who are unloving. It's hard to be just toward those who are unjust. It's hard to be kind to those who are unkind. It's hard to be polite for those who are mean, nasty, evil people who have stepped on our emotions, who have hurt us immeasurably, and we think that there's no way in the world that they should get away with it. And yet he says, do good. Do good. Dad gummit. I don't know about you. I don't like that. Do you like that? 
They've hurt me. Now I got to be good to them? That ain't happening. I ain't doing that. Well, Jesus said, if you're one of my disciples, that's what you'll do. He didn't say it was going to be easy. And lastly, let's look at the better response. There's an aspect called mercy, but there's an aspect called grace. Because mercy is not doing what we rightfully could do, but grace is now doing the good. How do we do good? And he's about to give us now four illustrations about what he's talking about. Four. We're going to look at them very quickly. The first one is verse 39, second part of the verse. But if anyone slaps you on the right, hand, on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. Now, we might not think today that a slap is a big thing, but in Jesus' day, in the Hebrew culture, a slap was a sign of disrespect. And if you were a man and you got slapped, man, we're going to war. And I think to some degree, in, in, in some of the male culture, a slap is also very demeaning. It's an insult. And what's happened here is this person has insulted you somehow. They have slapped you. You ever been insulted? And Jesus says here that he demands that we show respect toward each other. That is a law because we have been made in the image of man, and, I mean, in the image of God. And because man has been made in the image of God and we are to respect God, we should respect our fellow man. And to insult someone is to disrespect not only that man, but to disrespect the God who created that man. So it is a sin to insult someone, to belittle them. To show disrespect for anyone. And yet Jesus says what we ought to do now is to not retaliate when someone insults us. Is that easy or is that hard? Notice the second example in verse 40. And if anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. Obviously, there's a debt that's been accrued, and there's a debt that's been owed, and now this person is wanting to reconcile the debt, and the person is unwilling to pay it or unable to pay it for whatever means and for whatever reason, and he takes the guy to court, and he's suing him for what he believes is justly and rightfully his. And so he takes his tunic. The tunic is the inner part of the of the the garb or the, the clothes that they would wear, and the cloak is the outward, the coat is the outward part. There's, a, there's an inner part, the inner side, the inside of it, and there's an outer. And so the guy is unable to pay, and so he gives him the inner part of his garment. And they only had a few of them. Many of them only had one. Obviously, this guy is so poor, he's unable to repay the debt. So he gives the inside of his, his clothes as collateral for the debt. And Jesus says, don't give him just that but give him your coat as well go above and beyond what you owe overextend it do more than what you are required by the mosaic law to do a disciple is willing now to forfeit even himself in order to reconcile the debt towards someone else you know we often have a tendency well i'm only going to do what's what's required and again, he's saying, no, no, go beyond what is required and do even more than that. The third example is found in verse 41. And if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. What's up with that? In Roman period, a Roman soldier had every right to commandeer not only you, but any animal you may have as you're traveling for government use at any time. You were obligated 
to give not only yourself, if required by law, if a Roman were to ask for government use, and your beasts, your animals, in order to go and to be used by this Roman to go with him for at least a mile. If you were a Jew, you would have hated this and Jesus did. It was an insult. To be asked to do that, to have, you know, you're going on a journey, here comes a road soldier, I come into you, you're going to carry my load, not only that, your animals are going to carry my animals' load because they need rest, and we're going to walk alongside each other for a mile, and then we're going to exchange because I need rest and they need rest, and you're going to carry my load too. Does that sound fair to you? No. And Jesus is saying, hey, put aside your own personal rights, put aside your own personal privileges, and if you're asked to go one mile, go two. And they're probably looking at each other and saying, what? I don't want to go one. Now he's telling me to go two. If somebody asks you to go with them somewhere and help them move into their new house, Brother Andy, he commandeers your truck Don't only take one load, take two. Go with them as long as you need to go in order to meet their need, to die to your own rights and say, you know what? I'm going to die to my rights, and I'm going to elevate your rights, and I'm going to give, and I'm going to serve so that you might be served. Number 20, 42. He says, give to one who begs from you. Give to the one who begs from you. I can remember Brazil when, um, when um, we'd come off the, uh, when I was a kid, we'd come off the, the bus. We'd go every, every Sunday, we'd go to church, so we had to go by bus. Uh, my dad was sometimes preaching in other places, and we'd go by bus to this church that my dad had helped start. And on some Sundays, we'd have to go with my mom, my brother and sister and I, my mom, by bus to the church. We only had one car. And uh, we'd get to the downtown. You had to go downtown and then get another bus to go to where we were going. Everything went to downtown, and from there you went out. Kind of like all roads from here lead. If you're on a plane, you go through Atlanta or you go through Chicago or Dallas. I mean, it's, it's where you're going. You, not many straight flights. But anyway, we had to go downtown. And as we get up on Sunday morning, I, I never forget this, there would be beggars lined up, dozens of them, along the side of the, the street. And they would pick their sores, take their scabs off of their sores, because they believed the worse you looked, the more money you got. And it was their purpose to look as needy as they possibly could to gain sympathy and compassion from those who would get off the bus. So as soon as you stepped off, you would see these people. And dare I tell you, I I don't do this proudly, but over the course of years, you become blinded to those people. You just don't see them. They're there and you see them, but you don't see them. That seems impossible, doesn't it? But we see needy people all around us every day, and we ignore them. Because we're walking around like this. And Jesus says, give to the one who begs you. The idea and the concept is they're not begging you. The idea and the concept is we recognize there's a genuine need, and we recognize that there's a genuine need, either led by the Spirit or asked by the person who has a need. We are, the Hebrew was, by, by, by a mosaic law, was compelled to help. Now, notice he didn't say give everything you have to anyone who asked. But he says here to give to the one who has need. Make sure you assess and understand the need and give to meet the need. 
not the luxury, but the need. And I'm convinced that many of what we've defined as needs today is nothing but luxuries. Give to the one who begs. Give. It's hard to give, isn't it? Why is it? Because we've earned it. It's ours. It's mine. And if you want it or want something like I've got, dadgummit, you better go work for it because that's what we do in America. Now, we have a culture of people who are constantly begging and constantly living off other people's work and and effort. I understand all that. That's not what this is about. But what I am saying is there are truly needy, needy people in America. And if we're not careful, we'll lump them all together and we'll overlook those that are truly needy and truly need our help. And then lastly, notice what he says in the last part of the verse. And do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. Did you know by law, the Hebrew, if someone said, let me borrow some money, they were compelled by law to loan you the money? They were. Now, there were terms and conditions on that loan, and no loan was to be exceeded beyond seven years. Why is that? Because every seven years, there was called jubilee, which is one of the reasons why I love Clyde as a little girl named Jubilee. Every time I see her, I think about Jubilee. What is Jubilee? That means the year of Jubilee is all your debts are canceled. <laughs> Praise God. But there's no 30-year mortgages. Think about that. Some of you are now up to seven-year loans on your cars. So you can pay out <laughs> that payment for seven. Think about all the interest that's being a man. I, we don't need to go into that. That's a whole nother study for a whole nother time. But if someone were to genuinely come up and say, hey, I've got a dream. I've got a need. I've got a request. I need help. What would the believer do? Did you know when when the Hebrew loaned someone money, there was no interest? I remember there's a time when I was at Dallas Baptist University and I was about to graduate. And uh, it was about a week before graduation and and I was sweating bullets because, you know, I was ready to get out. I was on their six-year plan. Dallas Baptist University, college, four years, I was on the six-year plan. I was ready to get out. I got married during all that time and I was ready to get out. And a week before graduation, I got a letter saying I was not going to be able to graduate graduate until I paid my bill. I went to the registrar. I found out how much I owed. I went, it's the first time I ever heard that. My name was not printed on the printout that was handed out to everybody on graduation because they left my name off because they were going to let me graduate until I paid my bill. And they were going to publish my name and hand it out if I wasn't going to walk the line. They had to write me in. (laughs) Were it not for my father-in-law, who paid my debt, zero interest, which took me about six or seven years to pay back, I wouldn't have graduated. But why would he loan me the money at zero interest? Because I'm his son-in-law, and he wanted me as out as much as I wanted out, because I married his only little girl. But I wonder if we're so self centered and so self-centered that we're not willing to help someone fulfill their dream. So how do we put all this together? 
There's an interesting concept here. It says that we are to go beyond the natural and we're to live in the supernatural. And I want to finish with these thoughts. How do we live in the supernatural? Because it's easy to live in the natural, and Jesus is elevating us to the supernatural. And I think it's important that we understand that we need to guard against any form of retaliation. When you've been hurt, and you're in pain, and someone has insulted or abused or ridiculed or or intentionally or unintentionally really hurt you, you're going to want to retaliate, and we need to guard against that. You're going to want to naturally go there, but you've got to guard against that. Number two, you need to release more than is required. Don't release just enough mercy and just enough grace, but release more than is required of you. Go above and beyond what is required. Abandon all of your selfish rights because self has a tendency to rise up and take the throne and demand justice. Demand payback. Demand revenge. Demand retaliation. You want to get even and you want them to hurt, but we must abandon that selfish tendency that we have and just release them to God. We need to then commit to being generous. To being generous. A believer, a disciple, a Christ follower is always generous. We are willing to give more mercy and more grace than what is required. And we need to encourage someone else's dream. There's an interesting passage where Jesus in Matthew 18 tells a story about a man who had a debt that he couldn't pay. It's a, it's a, it's a parable that's talked, that, that Jesus talks with his disciples about because he's just told them that they are to forgive those who have offended them, those who have a debt against them, to forgive them. And one of the disciples says, well, how many times must I forgive and how should I forgive? And Jesus then gives them this parable about a guy who had a debt that he couldn't pay. And he went before the guy and there was a a hearing in a court and he said, I can't pay this enormous debt. And he said, then I forgive you. And you know the parable, he walks out of the courtroom, finds a guy who owes him just a little bit, drags him into court, and because he can't pay, puts him in jail. He retaliates. He seeks vengeance on this person who owes him a debt that he cannot pay. And the people hear about it. And they send word to the the other guy who forgave him of the huge debt. And he brings the guy in front of him and he says, did I not forgive you of this huge debt? Yeah. Then what right do you have this person to hold them accountable for this small debt when I've just forgiven you of this big debt? And he calls him wicked. So I ask you, you think you have a right to your feelings? Yeah, I do. They've hurt me. They've offended me. They have disrespected me. They have harmed my reputation. They have slandered my name. They they owe me this debt, and I want payback. And as we contemplate and reflect on these feelings, I think the Father always looks down on us, and he asks, who are you to hold them responsible for this little bitty debt when you have one this big that you owe me? 
I, as God, have been merciful to you. I have been gracious to you. I have sought justice, yes, by the death of Christ on the cross, and he died on that cross for your sin against me, and that justice has been satisfied through the righteousness of Christ, and now your debt has been paid, and you've been set free. And he's saying to us, cancel the debt and set themselves free. Set them free. Why should we set them free? Because if we don't set them free, we can't be free. If we don't set them free, we can't be free. And I'm convinced there are people here today who have harbored hurt and pain and heartache and sorrow and uh, this, 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 this concept, I want retaliation. And, and it's been years, if not decades, we've harbored this pain, this hurt, and this bitterness. I've known adults who have been offended and hurt by their parents when they were kids and they have not yet and have yet to release it and to let it go and it enslaves them i know adults who have who have had bitter relationships with other adults and broken marriages and and all and and we have just not released it and we've not let it go and it's holding us bondage and it's keeping us captive to these bitter things that only affect us more than it affects them and when we do allow those emotions to you know to take their course how nasty and how ugly does that come out and what benefit does that do well, it sure makes me feel better. No, it doesn't. Revenge, retaliation will never make you feel better. I'm convinced as a disciple of Christ, it'll make you worse. So let it go. Let it go. Let's pray. God, thank you for the joy and the opportunity we have today to be challenged by this passage. And I think this message really can speak to all of us because I think everyone in this room has been hurt, offended, insulted, purposefully or unpurposefully by someone else, and we think we have the right to hold on to our hurt and our pain, our agony, and our disappointment. That's human nature. We have rights, and yet when we come to you, Jesus, we die to those rights. And the reality is we have no more rights except to forgive, to release, and to let go. Whoever here, any of us here, including myself, if there's anything that, that we're holding on to in respect to what we've talked about today, I pray that your spirit would reveal that to our hearts and that we would confess it and release it and that you would cleanse us from it so that the pain, the agony, the hurt no longer impacts our relationship with you and our relationship with others. We're not trying, God, to minimize the pain or the hurt or the activity or the sin or the wickedness that was done. It was vile. It was wicked. It was painful. It was hurtful. And, and, and that, that's true. But like Jesus, like you, Jesus, we on that cross die to ourselves 
and we release that pain and we say, Father, forgive them. Forgive them. Forgive them. Cleanse us. Release us. And revive us today. Set us free. With the head bowed and your eyes closed, Jesus died to set you free. There was a debt that you had called sin. But for God so loved the world that he gave his one only son, that whosoever believeth on him would not perish but have everlasting life. Jesus paid your debt. So that through faith in him, as Savior and Lord of your life, you can be set free from that debt and live in a right relationship with God. God met the demand for justice for your sin by Jesus dying on that cross. And all you have to do is place your faith and trust in him as your Savior and Lord. Our pastors will be here this morning. If you've not been set free from your sin today, we invite you to personally trust Christ as your Savior. Maybe you've privately done that another time, but you've never publicly followed through on an invitation like this to declare your intent to follow Jesus Without any embarrassment, unashamedly, I commit my heart and life to follow Jesus as his disciples, as his disciple. And I want to be baptized today. We invite you to come. Or maybe as a disciple, you want to serve him here and unite with this church. Use your talents and gifts and abilities here to help us accomplish God's purpose for our church. We invite you to come. But everyone here today needs to be challenged by releasing and letting go Every hurt, every pain, every heartache, every disappointment, every sin, intentional or unintentional, to release it and to nail it on that cross and let it go. And maybe you need to come down, just kneel at the altar and let it go. What would, have he, what would he have you do today in this time together with him? What you're sensing is God's leading and prompting in your life. And how you respond to that prompting will indicate whether you leave free or still in bondage. It's his desire that you leave free and that you be released. The choice is yours.